Because Money was originally recorded as a video podcast, so there may be visuals that don't carry through to this audio-only version. Please visit becausemoney.ca to see the show notes, related links, and more. Wait, why is Sandy laughing already? <laughs> it's just the way I have to open. Oh. <laughs> I just can't help it. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of Because Money. This is going to be our season three finale, and we have a great guest to end the season with, Preet Energy, who needs no more introduction than that. Preet, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on. So, yeah, we, we want to talk to you about so much stuff, but we'll try to keep it to a reasonable amount of time, a half hour, hour or so. Uh, but perhaps we can start off with talking about why there are so many mutual funds in Canada, especially because we've all read that indexing is the way to go. So Right. Yeah, and, and we're starting to see a proliferation in index funds as well. And you would think, why would that, why would that be rational if you know an index fund has sort of one mandate to track an index, then you'd pick the one with the lowest cost and the lowest tracking error, and that would be it. There would be no reason to have other ones. But we're starting to see not only a proliferation of index funds, broad-based, plain vanilla index funds, there's a lot of competition there, but also you're now starting to see mutual fund companies sort of branch out into uh, providing exchange-shared funds as well, which are actively managed. So we're seeing an explosion in actively managed ETFs. And so all sort of the bad characteristics that people have talked about with respect to mutual funds and this huge proliferation of mutual funds is now happening in the ETF space. And um, so I came across some pretty interesting research on this because I was looking into this uh, for other reasons and came across this paper, which, which may actually serve to explain why there are so many mutual funds and soon to be ETFs that all seem to do the same thing. And especially in Canada, there's no real price competition. So it's kind of like, well, how do you how do you reconcile these two facts? And what's really interesting is that if you look at the TSX, um, there are as of March, I think there was two thousand two hundred and seven constituents in the in the TSX uh, individual components. And there is actually, according to the fund library, back in April of this year, there was two thousand two hundred and fifty seven mutual fund managers. So not just individual mutual funds, mutual fund managers. And collectively, they ran sixteen thousand nine hundred and ninety one distinct mutual funds. So that means not even including all the different share classes. And that was, again, as of last month. And if you were to count all the share classes, that number raise, uh, goes up to thirty five thousand nine hundred and forty seven mutual funds that were available to Canadians as of last month. And when you look at the price competition, a lot of people would say, what price competition? They're, they're pretty expensive. So, um, so that's always kind of been this conundrum, um, all these different products, but not as much competition as you would expect. So there's this paper, um, well, actually, let me take a step back. There's this really old, simple, elegant theory known as Hotelling's theory of spatial competition. Sounds boring, but it's actually really, really interesting. Um, and the way that people explain what that theory is, they all use the same example, and I'm not going to be any different. I'm going to use that example too. So imagine that you've got a beachfront, and there are people who are sunbathing, and in, they're enjoying the water and whatnot, and this beachfront is one mile long. And let's say at the very end, one of the very ends of this beachfront, there is a guy with a push cart who's selling ice cream. 
and you're a guy with a push cart and you want to sell ice cream. So the question you would ask is where should you set up on this beach? So you've got one guy all the way at one end, where should you set up your push cart? And so a lot of people would say, well, we should set up at the exact opposite end so that you're sort of splitting the beach 50, 50, but strategically that's the wrong thing to do. You would actually set up your cart right beside his cart. So you've got 99% of the beach and he's got one, but because these push carts are mobile, uh, what he'll do the next day is he'll set up right beside you the next day. So now he's got 98% and you've got 2%. And then every day you keep on leapfrogging each other until you end up right in the middle and you're back to back. And this is actually a Nash equilibrium. So neither person can improve their position by changing their current strategy. And this theory actually explains a lot of the things that we see every day uh, in life, such as why do you see two gas stations on the exact same corner everywhere? You rarely see just one, there's always two. And with coffee shops, you'll see two or three coffee shops at the very same intersection. And in Vancouver, you'll see four coffee shops on the same intersection. And I'm sure a lot of people could ask. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's one uh, intersection in Vancouver where there are two Starbucks on the same intersection. And so a lot of people probably have, have noticed this at some point. I say, why would they do that? So this is all because of Hotelling's theory of spatial competition. That is sort of like the Nash equilibrium. So, so this guy from Stanford decided to apply this theory to the proliferation of mutual funds to sort of see, all right, does this kind of explain what's going on in the mutual fund space? And what he found was really interesting. Um, what he found was, and this speaks to a little bit about um, behavioral finance, but that investors chase returns, which I think a lot of people, we know that, but they chase these returns indiscriminately. So not only do they chase alpha, um, which is you know uh, actual manager skill, but they'll also chase factor returns. So what that means is if you're a fund manager and you set up shop and your specialty is large cap growth, uh, investing, you'll set up your fund and you'll attract some money and, you know, maybe a year or two, you'll keep on attracting money. But then one year, let's say small cap value is the asset class that outperforms. So investors will leave your fund and pour money into small cap value, whether or not that small cap value manager had skill or not. They don't, they don't care. They're indiscriminate. They'll just chase the factor returns as well as alpha. And so essentially what all these mutual fund companies will decide is, all right, well, if they're going to leave our large cap growth and go to small cap value, we might as well set up a small cap value fund so that at least if they're leaving our fund, they're going to one of our other funds. And then eventually you just build that out and they will eventually have a product shelf that has every single investment style because they know that investors are just going to chase performance every single year. And so you might as well have a place for them to chase too. So, uh, so that's why you don't even need to compete on price because investors don't look at that in aggregate. They just look at what asset class has been doing well and they'll chase those returns. So you might as well have a fund in that space. So is it also partly because of um, like, and again, there might not be research to show this, but because of what investors look at when they're looking at funds, because when they're looking at mutual funds, they're mostly looking at those past return tables because those are very visible whereas the fees are not so much but right. one thing that i have noticed in um the sort of plain vanilla etf space is that there is price competition as soon as vanguard came into canada we saw bmo and iShares drop their prices as well and they've had another round of price cutting several years afterward 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's there's a correlation with uh, financial literacy of investors and um, the things that they focus on. So when you have someone who's spent even just a little bit of time, and I think this has really been aided by, you know, personal finance bloggers, investment bloggers and whatnot, all sort of uh, chiming in on the same message. You really need to focus in on costs uh, that people are more attuned to that if they are interested enough to even do a bit of cursory research. And so that's driving some change, but you're still seeing, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, products that are that are coming out um, that could be a lot cheaper. And one of the results of this paper, he did a study and he found that um, because of this um, behavior of investors and that they're uh, not discriminating too much on price, it allowed for 30% greater profit margins for these uh, fund managers, whether it be mutual funds or presumably um, uh, ETF providers. So it's, it's a huge issue. Uh, but I think we're starting to move the needle. I don't say that we've solved everything yet. We're starting to move the needle with, with more and more people focusing on costs. Can I ask the question, do we have um, numbers um, about who who drives investment decisions for Canadian investors? So when we say like, oh, investors, they're not really, you know, they're going to go to, you know, let's say small cap value or whatever the next year. And so the fund company comes out with that. Are we sure that it's investors? Like, or, or how sure can we be or how much can we split up? Is investors doing that or is it the advisor that has to show he's you know, I'm providing value because I'm going to pick the next thing and my fund right. company happens to provide it. Yeah, that's a great question. So with um, with Canada, uh, I don't know the numbers, but I can tell you from studies from around the world that oftentimes the financial advisors are driving those poor uh, decisions and they are kind of guiding their investors, their clients to chase those returns. Yeah. Um, and that is especially exasperated when you take into account the uh, the compensation structures. So whenever you have uh, commission-based advice in jurisdictions, where many jurisdictions that is sort of the norm, you see that those effects are exacerbated whether or not the client is advised or not. So non-advised households do it, advised households do it. And there have been many studies that would say that the advised households actually exhibit more of that behavior um, than if you just left investors to their own devices. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the compensation structure. You know, if you incentivize people more for having more equity uh, to, to shoot for higher returns, then it works and advisors will recommend riskier things or certain products that have different compensation structures. So it, um, I think it's a really good point because sometimes what gets lost is, you know, when you look at the research and whatnot, they sort of just say investors. Uh, and bad decisions, but really, you really need to tease out, uh, well, who's the source of the bad behavior? And you see it on both sides, both the investor themselves, but definitely the financial advisor. And I think a, a, one of the reasons for that is there's a huge variation in the quality of financial advisors out there. And one of the really interesting findings that has been, um, been harped on a lot in the research is, listen, if you want, uh, financial advisors to be considered a profession, then there's something lacking that all other professions have. And we sort of intuitively know this, like if you're a lawyer, engineer, doctor, you have undergraduate, graduate work, um, you may have residency or internships that last years and years and years and years. So you don't have that with financial advisor, like the minimum barrier is no joke, a two week self-study course and then it's you're, it's the worst. right, yeah. 
And the other thing that's lacking is there are no uh, sort of ubiquitous master's level and doctoral level programs on the theory of personal financial planning. And so a lot of people argue that if you really want to have uh, uh, this industry viewed as a profession, then that is a huge missing component, which would take a long time to set up, you know, a master's and doctoral level programs looking at the theory of personal financial planning. And one of the reasons for that is there's this gigantic divide between the academic world and the practitioner world. And they both identified that this, this gap exists. And the gap is, you know, in the A-level journals, like Journal of Finance and whatnot, they have always tried to quantify financial advice in the context of the portfolio. So they have a very portfolio-centric view of the world. And practitioners, uh, for a myriad reasons, have said, well, it's getting tougher to show value <laughs> in just portfolios. So there's been this whole scale shift for a lot of firms to at least talk about moving to comprehensive financial planning. Um, whether or not a lot of people do that is a different story, but they are certainly starting to see this push because they talk about advisor alpha uh, being delivered in terms of you know the financial planning and not the portfolio. So the practitioner world has really started to embrace, yes, we need to look at it at a comprehensive, holistic view. The academic world has said, no, it's a portfolio centric, but they've both said, yeah, there's a, there's a gap here. And we both realize that we now need the academic uh, sort of theory of personal financial planning um, to bridge this well-identified gap. And is the seed there? Like you have your fingers in all of the academic pies, don't you? That's, so what's like, how, who's the closest? What's coming here? Yeah, well, what's interesting is so there was a there was a doctoral uh, dissertation published in 2012 by someone named Rosalind Overton, and she did a study, uh, you know, 80,000 words if you want to read through the whole thing, um, talking about bridging this gap, and she kind of you know uh, talked about well what's needed to get there next, uh, but it seemed like such a big project. Um, and any individual, you know, research study or whatnot, it's just going to move you just a little bit. You're just going to move the dial just bit by bit by bit. So everyone has sort of said, yes, someone needs to really think about bridging this gap. It's just no one's really stepped up to um, make a quantum leap yet. We're, we're getting there slowly but surely. Um, so there are people who are trying to develop these personal financial indexes. So the research that I'm uh, doing uh, I'll sort of explain the, the basic methodology. Uh, essentially, what I want to do is if you want to measure the value of advice in a contemporary financial planning uh, perspective, you have to develop a measurement tool. Mm -hmm. so, so that's part one. And so what we're tentatively working with is uh, a multi-factor, dynamically sensitive index. So right now, let's call it a financial well-being index. So it's multi-factor because it looks at not just your rate of return, uh, not just portfolio costs. Uh, it'll look at things like what's your savings rate, what's your retirement income replacement ratio, what's your uh, disability insurance coverage, your life insurance coverage, do you have an estate plan, do you have wills, do you have powers of attorney, all this stuff. And each of these factors, so multi-factor and then dynamically sensitive. So uh, a good example is if you're 64 years old and you don't have disability insurance, not a big deal. Right. So the sensitivity of that factor, if like you score zero on disability insurance coverage and you're 64, then assuming everything else is OK, it's not a big deal because you're effectively self-insured. You're one year away from retirement. Not a big deal. If you're 25, you're self-employed and you don't have disability coverage. 
that's a big deal. And so the weight, the importance of that factor is much bigger for you. So, so essentially what this, this index will do, this, this scoring uh, system, will be able to go to anyone and say, all right, so controlling for your age, gender, income, where you are in life, how much money you have, how big your portfolio is, all this stuff, your number is 50. Or your number is 70, yours is 90 and whatnot. So controls for where you are in your journey. So now you've got a way to sort of measure how, how well people are doing. Now the second thing is, now you have to actually measure it and see how that changes. And ideally, if you had the power of God, you know, you do sort of a longitudinal study and you would randomly assign people into a control group. So you're not going to get an advisor and you're going to get a sh shitty advisor and you're going to get a good one uh, and all these different channels and see how that number changes based on their treatment or control group. Of course, that's completely unethical, right? You can't do that. So that's one of the challenges of, of trying to tease out causality is um, how do you do that? So there's a lot of studies that have tried to identify, they purport to identify causality, but all they're really doing is showing correlation. Mm -hmm. And so we all know the studies that'll say, yes, if you have an advisor, you've got X hundred percent more assets. But uh, we know because of the commission structure that's available for most advisors out there, you only go after people with money. Uh, and if you have money, that's when you start to look for financial advisors. Not everyone has the wherewithal to say, I've got nothing, I'm young, I should get someone to help me with this. So that's very rare. So there's this selection bias that goes on that kind of throws out your whole, whole study. So one of the things that we're looking at, and I, um, I chatted briefly with John about this offline, um, is incorporating what's called a regression discontinuity design. And it's, it's kind of a way to simulate an experiment. So an experiment is where you take you know, a random sample and you randomly assign them into either treatment groups or control groups. So again, you can't really do that. But one way that you kind of simulate that is with this regression discontinuity design. So the best way to dis describe how this works is, um, if you remember years ago, there's this big movement for corporations to have this say on pay um, uh, enacted. So they would have shareholder votes and shareholders would vote as to whether or not they should institute this say on pay policy, which allowed shareholders to have a say on an executive compensation because compensation was getting crazy. And so they wanted some accountability. So a bunch of companies had these votes on whether or not they should institute say on pay. And of course, uh, you know, as a researcher, what you'd want to do is you want to say, all right, so what was the result for the companies that instituted say on pay, what was the change on their share performance over time? Did that lead to better management decisions, more accountability, or did it not work, et cetera? So the way that uh, one guy studied it was he said, all right, well, if you take a look at the companies where they had this vote as to whether or not they should institute say on pay, there's going to be a distribution of, of all these voting results for all these different companies. So you're going to have some people where all the shareholders none of them voted. So like 0% voted for say on pay. And then you can have other people in the other tail where almost 100% of shareholders said, yeah, of course we'd have say on pay. But if you looked at just those two sort of bands and that distribution, you could say, well, there's probably something fundamentally different about these corporations. You know, if you had so many people voting no and so many people voting yes, they're not really the same. So it's not like you randomly assign them. So by using this 
regression discontinuity design, what you do is you look at the threshold, which is 50%, right? So to get anything pushed through, you need 50 plus 50% 50 plus one vote and you push it through. So if you take a threshold of say 49% to 51%, you could probably say, well, those companies are probably more similar in terms of all their other aspects than the companies who are in the tails compared to each other. So now it's kind of like if you just take a look at the companies that were 49% and they did get say on pay and the ones that got 51% they did get say on pay. Now it's kind of like you kind of randomly assigned them into a treatment or a control group. And then you could measure the differences right at that cliff. So the trick is, you know, how do you how do you apply that to to what I'm trying to do? You have to find some kind of scale or measure that gives you the propensity to seek advice or not, right? So you have to develop a scale and, you know, uh, get data on these different factors, which would say, this is the type of person who is going to be more delegative. This is the type of person who's going to want to do it themselves. And then you want to find the people who could kind of go either way and sort of see what they picked and sort of use that as your simulated experiment. I have so many questions that I cannot even get one of them out. <laughs> I'm talking too much. So, I know, I'm talking too much. It's the whiskey. <laughs> yeah, so, so this sounds so good. I, I really like this idea of um, trying to quantify advice beyond how your portfolio did, um, especially because there's so many aspects to advice that are beyond portfolio generation. Like, as you said, getting, getting your insurer, uh, insurance squared away and disaster-proofing your life and creating cash flow and budgeting and stuff. Um, so are you looking at qualitative measures at all, like how secure people feel with their lives or how confident they are they could handle a disaster or interruption in pay or something like that? Right, yeah, really good uh, really good point. Because any, any um, questionnaire that I developed that I could get you know, a, a large enough sample size to calculate these financial well-being scores for all these people, has to be simple enough that they can fill it out on their own, right? So that's one of the big challenges. Um, so we're trying to figure out, well, how do we do that? And so for that, there's, what I'm thinking about doing is, you know, with the survey, either I'm gonna give people something like a, a free course, which teaches them the different uh, buzzwords, terminologies, uh, things that they need to know to the point where they can answer those questions and then have them answer the survey questions sort of concurrently. Um, but the other thing I have to do is, so it is gonna be, uh, well, right now, it's gonna be a mixed method study. So there'll be a quant aspect to it, but also a qualitative. And one of that, parts of that qualitative will be interviewing you know, a random sample of people who took the survey to make sure that um, uh, they're A, interpreting the survey questions correctly. Because uh, what I found is, especially when it comes to finance and financial literacy, when you talk to people after they've taken any type of service, including risk profile questionnaires, mm -hmm. turns out they don't really know um, how to answer those questions. There's enough ambiguity that you really can't be certain that what they've answered is truly reflective of what they want. So it's very critical to make sure that the, the data uh, are, are correct. And I remember um, uh, we had this guy come in at the beginning of our studies and he just spent the day yelling at us talking about the difference between uh, phenomena and data. And essentially it's, it's this, phenomena is what actually occurs and data is your recording 
of that phenomenon. And there's so many ways where errors can be introduced between what actually happens and what the data say it can be, you know, um, transcriber error, you're not measuring the right way. And so, you know, your results can only ever be as good as your data. And, uh, and so I'm trying to be very mindful of that because I think, especially looking at a lot of the surveys that have been done out there, which have all been done over the phone through like it's just read and all that stuff. I don't know if there's a high enough level of veracity for you to really make many of the conclusions that have been drawn from a lot of those studies. Well, and there's so much sensitivity around, especially like we, we all kind of know that sort of intuitively, right? That if there's a, if, you know, if there's survey results about something that's, that's self-assessed yeah. and it's, and it's one of those self-assessed things that's, oh, it's important to make sure that people think that I know what I'm talking about when it comes <laughs> to my money. Yeah. There, there are probably things that people will say, well, that's obviously wrong. I'm, I'm not right. going to say that. Right. Yeah, yeah it's kind you of like have diet people, You have people who answer uh, like risk profile questionnaires like it's some kind of test. Yeah. Right? And say, well, I remember they talked to me about market history and that the people who do well can suffer downturns. So, yes, I can tolerate the 20% loss. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> My response would be not do anything. Would it? So, really? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, Warren Buffett would probably buy more if there was a market crash. So I'm sure I could do what Warren Buffett has done. <laughs> totally. Like nothing. Uh, yeah, that's um, that is really, really interesting. So we so one of the, it's, it, this is not necessarily related, but one of the things that we go through um, as we're trying to evaluate, like, OK, what kind of planning help does this client need? Well, OK, so. So there was a little while where I was using kind of a sketch. So to me, it was like there was three things, right? There was their capacity to make change, right? So, do, you know, do you have extra money that's just kind of lying around? Their knowledge about that. So I, I really hesitate. I don't enjoy the phrase financial literacy. It's just my own thing. But so, okay, so where do they, okay, so where do those two things cross? And then where do they cross on their sort of time of life line and trying to come up with and that was it. That's as far as it got. And clearly it's quite vague because I can't explain it any more than that. But it was always that sense of like, okay, well, I'm not really looking for a net worth indicator and I'm not really necessarily looking for an income indicator and I'm not necessarily looking for an age indicator. So it's, I'm really interested in trying to find a way to bring it all together. And especially that part of that kind of weighing each one, depending on how important it should be for that particular time of life or whatever that is extremely interesting when are you going to be done so we can use this uh about three years <laughs> <laughs> well i mean the, so, the the index itself will will actually be developed uh within the year because i need to develop that before i administer the, the questionnaire so so that part will be done um there's no guarantees that it'll be perfect i'm, I'm sure it'll be there'll be about a hundred uh, iterations before it's um uh you know even good, but there's nothing really out there. I know that, uh, I think it's Anna Maria Lusardi. Um, she's a researcher, uh, I think she's based in Washington now, but if you've, if you've ever seen those, every now and then in, in, the, in the media, you'll see um, stats about people's financial literacy, and there's these very three simple questions that are used in these, these uh, studies, and they ask simple things like, if you earn 1% a year in your bank account after five years, would you have, if you put in a hundred bucks, would you have $102, more than 102, less than 102? I don't know if you've seen that. It's pretty ubiquitous. Um, but they use these three questions to measure financial literacy. Um, it's probably not enough. Um, but I think something like two thirds of people can't answer two of the, two of the three questions. And they're so ridiculously simple. Like it's pretty scary 
um, how little a lot of people know about just the basics of banking, let alone financial planning for a lifetime. Is numeracy always like a really good proxy for financial literacy? I don't, um, I don't think so. Um, you know, when I think about what you're really trying to get at, uh, get to at the end of the day is the framework for people to make good choices with the resources that they have available to them. So if you've decided that, you know, there's some people who just don't like numbers, but they'll, they'll be able to say, well, I can delegate this. You want to make sure that they're delegating to the right people and they know what choices to make, what, what they need to look for in advice, the, the options in terms of cost. So they don't need to look under the hood. They just need to make sure that they're going in the right direction. So that, that to me is what uh, financial empowerment or whatever you want to call it, because I agree, financial literacy in and of itself, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of studies that say if you actually integrate financial literacy into the curriculum, there's actually no difference in the people you know, five years later in terms of the decisions that they make, they always say that you need to deliver it uh, like a, with a, a JIT system, like a just in time. Yeah. So you teach people about mortgages like one year before they're ready to get their first mortgage. You teach people about investing right when they're ready to have money set aside, which is after they've learned how to budget and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. It's a very tricky nut to crack. Um, so just, just a, a plain blanket measure of financial literacy in and of itself, there's probably some difference there, but I don't know if it's as big as people are making it out to be. Yeah, it's funny, and I cannot recall, it was just in the past couple of days, but I can't even remember who wrote it. Reading something about people's sense of their own time horizon being an, a good indicator of the, the quality of the decisions they'll make. In like, right. So if they're really only thinking about like, uh, how do I get to the end of this week, probably yeah. their decisions aren't gonna be that great because of all the, all the different kinds of stress that they're under, right? Mm -hmm. um, but people who can talk about, and golly, I wish I could remember that. People who can talk about, you know, five years from now, one of the ways that it was specifically a, a kind of a four planners article. One of the ways that you can help your clients is by helping them just extend out their time horizon just a little bit more. Like, okay, now how, how much clearer are your clients this time you meet them on what's going to happen a year from now than they were the last time, which I found quite compelling, actually. That yeah, idea of yeah. triage. Yeah, and it makes sense because uh, a lot of people succumb to that that sort of hyperbolic discounting, um, and they're very present focused. Um, and there are some people who really do think long term first, but they're very rare. Uh, but those are the types of people that tend to save more because they can sort of balance that. Um, but most people, especially, and I think I feel like it's getting worse. I have no data to back this up, but I feel like it's getting worse as our attention spans get shorter. Um, we're all about the immediacy of the availability of information, you know, even, and you see this propagating throughout our lives, you know, in terms of, um, for example, last night, uh, a lot of news organizations were talking about uh, potential death in the royal family, and they were just jumping to be the first to report it. Uh, and that just seems to be everyone is about me first or being first or whatnot. And there's less emphasis on long-term planning, but that is, that is like the key the personal finance is understanding trade-offs. Like that's that's all it comes down to is understanding what trade-offs you're making with every decision that you make. John, you have to take over. I'm just a little bit too excited by all of that. <laughs> so um, something that I think dovetails nicely with that is this idea of like decision fatigue. 
spot where if you're under a lot of stress, if you're having to make a lot of day-to-day -day decisions, it becomes harder to make the next one and to make it well. Um, so I might let you describe the study because your memory is just fantastic. I can remember that there was that study with like the chocolate and walking down the hall and whatnot, but oh, yeah. you'll yeah. remember more, more precisely. Um, but that's another area where I can see like financial planning having a benefit, like not even talking about investments and long-term planning, just helping someone manage their cash flow and their budgeting so they're not having to make these very stressful day-to-day -day decisions to make it less stressful in their budget. But I'll let you jump in and talk about decisions. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's worth reiterating those studies um, because they're they're really fascinating. <clears throat> and um, the uh, the idea. So I talked about that. Um, where was it? I guess it was the personal finance conference. I gave a talk on that, and I got the idea from a blogger at the World Bank who had written about a couple of these studies, and they were talking specifically about um, decision making for lower income households. But this applies across the board. So he linked together these two, two separate studies that had to do with mental cognition and willpower. So the first study I'll explain, um, researchers lured subjects in uh, for this experiment under the guise of studying the, the impact of environment change on memory recall. And so uh, they had half the subjects, they had to memorize a two-digit number, and the other half of the subjects had to memorize a seven-digit number. And then when they got their numbers, they would be told, all right, you're gonna go down the hall, so the environment change, and then you're just gonna recall that number to a researcher in the other room. And as kind of like a throwaway statement, they said, oh, and by the way, as you're walking down the hall, there's gonna be a snack cart, there's gonna be fruit salad and chocolate cake, pick one. And that was actually what they were really interested in is what they would choose. They, had, they didn't really care about their memory recall, that stuff's been studied ad nauseum. And what was really interesting was that if you were part of the group that only had to memorize two numbers, you picked the fruit salad or the chocolate cake in relatively equal proportions. But if you had to memorize the seven digit number, you almost always picked the chocolate cake. And so the question is, okay, what's going on there? And so this has to do with willpower and your mental resources that are available for making decisions. So, if you've got to memorize two digits, that's not a taxing exercise whatsoever. That's very easy to do. So when you come up to that snack cart, you're now faced with this choice. Should I indulge and have the chocolate cake or should I do the right thing, the optimal choice, which is to have the fruit salad, which is healthier. And so <clears throat> if you have seven digits to memorize, your, your working memory capacity is seven items. And so you're basically using up all your mental resources. So when you come up to the snack cart, you don't have any mental resources left to make an optimal decision. You just see the chocolate cake and you grab it. So, so that was the first experiment uh, that was mentioned. And then the second experiment was really cool. Um, there were two tasks given to people. And the first task was they had to squeeze one of those exercise hand grips. Uh, but psychologists use these exercise hand grips to, to measure willpower. So they're not as stiff as an exercise grip. They're relatively loose. And the longer you can hold on, the more willpower you have. So it's a measure of your willpower. The second task people were asked was to make a decision about whether or not they wanted to buy a uh, highly discounted brand name soap, right? And there were two groups uh, and they reversed the order of the task that they were presented. So group number one, they were told, all right, you're gonna squeeze the hand grip first and then make a decision about the soap. And group number two, you're gonna make a decision about the soap first and then squeeze the hand grip. So 
the the global average for squeezing a hand grip is two minutes, right? So that's a that's that's the mean amount of time you can hold on before your willpower gives up. So for the people who had to squeeze the hand grip first and then make a decision about the soap, they were able to hold on for two minutes, just like everyone else. But for the group that had to make a decision about the soap first, if you were rich, you were able to hold on for two minutes, just like everyone else. But if you were poor, you could only hold on for, uh, I think it was uh, 40 seconds less, so 80 seconds. So a full 40 seconds less because you had to make a decision about the soap first, but only if you were poor. So how do you reconcile that? Well, if you're high income and you're making a decision about the soap, the only thing you care about is, well, do I want the soap, yes or no? It's not a big deal to you. But if you're poor, you have to make a trade-off, right? So you have to decide uh, what is better for you. You have to give something up in order to buy that soap. And so that requires the exercise of willpower. So if you make that decision about the soap first, and then you squeeze the hand grip, which is a measure of how much willpower you have, it's been depleted because you use some in making that decision. So essentially what this is saying is that when you are faced with decisions and you make a lot of uh, heavy decisions in a row, then the optimality of your uh, choices that you choose go down because you just don't have that, that, that willpower to, to exercise. That's a depletable resource. So there's, there's a number of takeaways from that. And again, this is not just a high income versus low income story. Um, this has to do with anyone who has to make tough decisions. So think about, you know, pizza night in the typical household usually comes Thursday or Friday night when, you know, after a long week of work and, and whatnot, you've given up. Right. So you, you've run out of that willpower to make the healthy dinner and whatnot. You're like, you know what? Screw it. Let's order a pizza uh, that comes at the end of the week after you've depleted some of your willpower. Anyone who's tried to uh, get into better shape, you know that there's two basic components, uh, eating better and going to the gym every now and then. And usually what ends up happening with most people is they'll go to the gym. They'll be on the treadmill for an hour, exercising a lot of willpower to do that. And they come home and they eat the chocolate cake or whatever, because they've got no more willpower left, right? So people often cheat right after a workout because they've used up all that willpower. So this applies yeah, all the time, but we have to make decisions and that we have to be cognizant about, you know, the timing of those decisions. Sometimes we can make better decisions just by spacing them out. Or by making them ahead of time. Yes, automating them, right? Uh, removing it from the equation. So removing having to make a decision. So imagine, so this is a perfect analogy, Sandy. Imagine that you didn't set up an automatic savings plan, but every month you had to decide how much should I put towards saving this month, right? Wouldn't work, right? And, and the only reason um, that a lot of people save as much as they are able to is because they made it automatic. It's like going to the gym and signing up for that gym membership and never having to actually do the workout, right? So it's like, it is such a powerful uh, thing to do to remove the opportunity to make decisions by automating as much as you can, or, or in some cases, you know, delegating to, with the caveat being a good financial advisor. <laughs> it's always the big caveat. Huge caveat, <laughs> huge caveat. Yeah, and that's where, um, I don't know if you're a, fan of like the old Tom Fancy type 
80s nuclear submarine movies, but I always imagine like those big binders full of contingency plans. It's like, all right, <laughs> wife's in the hospital, contingency plan 103, I am calling Rogers and canceling the cable and um, suspending this and suspending that to make the budget work, and I've got the emergency fund in this account, and uh, other than that, I'm going to be okay, and let's go to the hospital and worry about the health issue and finances are taken care of. Yeah, that's a great example. You know, um, with an investment policy statement, one of the the, uh, the benefits of an investment policy statement is you remove having to make decisions, right? So you'll know, for example, when you should rebalance. It's either based on a, a periodic schedule and you sort of remove having to think about it. Some people will say it's based on a deviation from your target allocation, but it's it's written down, right? And so you should stick to that and it, it removes the opportunity to uh, make a decision on the fly, which may not be optimal in the first place. So yeah, that automation and removing, having to make those decisions on a constant basis, um, it's, it's those simple things like that can actually go a long way to improving people's financial efficacy. I feel like there's room for a budget policy statement. And I kind of want to be able to Velcro like they do in like the Apollo missions, like just kind of Velcro the laminated binders on things. <laughs> like, okay. Just pull this down. I got my pencil. Uh, yeah, that the that was actually something that I, in many ways, I really want Chris to be in this episode because he wrote out a, a couple of weeks ago. He had this grid, and it was kind of nine. So like kind of, fi not financial, like step zero at the top, and like more advanced stuff at the bottom. And one of the step zero items was, could you like if something happened, like you were explaining, John like what would be your triage list for the, like tomorrow something happens and then what do you do so that yeah you've made those decisions in advance and you don't have to then in the middle of a stressful situation be like oh i don't know what i'm supposed to do now yeah i am very much enjoying this conversation <laughs> <laughs> so is that is that something that that you do for clients is like a budget policy statement um it's interesting that you ask because I would like to do that with more clients. Often one of the things that we end up talking about is at the very beginning, especially is, Oh no, I, my spending's fine. That's not the issue. It's right. something, it's something else entirely. Right. And, and you have to, I mean, it takes, it takes a long time to really tease out that. No, I mean, your budget is where the rubber meets the road, right? Like it's nice to have a very long plan, but tomorrow if you kind of go out and, sabotage it like that's so this this idea of capacity so how serious is it well it could be really serious if you don't have a lot of capacity and really it could be very serious because it's a huge wasted opportunity if you have a lot of capacity and all you use that for is to just give yourself a big kind of pass on everything because well i'm never going to go into overdraft or i'm never going to have to put on my credit card so it's fine i always found that quite frustrating but i actually this idea of a budget policy statement only came from this conversation so ask me again in a year okay yeah it'll be interesting <laughs> i think it's a i think it's a really good idea uh, again because it speaks to sort of like some of these best practices when it comes to removing the ability for people to make decisions on the fly is probably a good thing so if you can set up you know well what would happen and having these contingency plans especially when it comes to cash flow management because that is i mean that's that's the foundation right it's the cash flow management and i've I forget who said it first, but it's something that really stuck with me is that if you want to know, like people will tell you what their priorities are, but if you want to know what their priorities are, see how they're spending their money today. Cause that's actually 
reflective of their actual priorities. And whether that jives what they think they'd like their priorities to be is a totally different story. Exactly. That's exactly. I, I distinctly remember standing in the grocery store. This is almost not at all on, on topic. I remember standing in the grocery store when we had our first baby before the other ones came along and thinking, <laughs> I would like to buy diapers. They're important. <laughs> but I can't. I don't know if the mortgage has come out yet. And right. I don't want that to bounce. So I don't. <laughs> I have to stand here in my sleep-deprived haze and uh, had to do math to make this decision. And that day, I came home and I thought, even in my sleep-deprived state, I just need an account balance. I just need an account balance to tell me. And the mortgage can't be part of it or whatever, right? right. So from, from eight or nine years now, we've had a spending account. <laughs> like, this is where those kinds of decisions come from. And yeah. the only decision you have to make is, is the number bigger than the thing that you want to buy? And how long do you have before that number gets bigger because you put more money into it? Right. And I can't like, I don't want to feel the stress of worrying whether my money lines up with my values. So I have to put that barrier in place. I have to do, there's something physical I have to, like I've got to put money into the account if I want to cheat in right. some way. Right? Yeah. And so I've tried, that's one of the structures that I like to put in place for clients as much as I can. Because that whole idea, that kind of navel-gazing of like, that I say navel-gazing as if it's a bad thing. But there's a whole bunch of personal work that people often have to do as part of, I mean, even before a financial planning engagement, for goodness sake, is very much, okay, what are the things that I actually am getting value out of? Maybe it is the latte to use the old kind of saw in financial planning. What am I getting value out of? And is that what I'm actually spending my money on? And that correcting that mismatch might go a long way to even just your perceived sense of financial health. Right. Kind of yeah. more than any of the other things, really. Yeah. I think, I think you should uh, think about that budget policy statement and um, maybe in a year give us a, a report. Um, and I, I, think there's, I think there's something to that. Mm -hmm. um, we probably need a sexier name. <laughs> budget is just the worst. Yeah. I can't. I literally yeah. cannot think of a cash flow. No. no. Yeah, I don't know. We'll no. have to. We'll have to maybe outsource it to a marketing yeah. firm or something. But, <laughs> but the but the, the idea uh, I think has merit, and I think a lot of people need that. And um, I think especially when it comes to things like cash flow management, is where you know, like the tough love really works. Because people don't even realize how much they need it until after it's been implemented and they sort of have this off moment, right? Like how powerful it can be. Look at that. Um, John would send, he would set up one of those emails to, if you don't start meeting your cash flow goals, he'll email your aunt. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and your mother. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a good little hack. <laughs> I'm scared of him now. <laughs> What else would you like to talk about, Preet? I mean, you're, you've got oh. so much going on in terms of like, um, you know, the behavioral studies and the value of advice and uh, your PhD studies, the neuroscience and factor stuff that you did before at uh, Dimensional Funds. and Yeah, um, geez, I don't know. Uh, I should clarify that um, it's, it's technically a DBA, uh, not a PhD. Uh, so it's uh, a doctor of business administration. So it's it's a little bit different. PhD is tends to be more on the academic side, and the DBA is more on the sort of like a professional doctorate. Um, uh, and I know that people in sort of like the university sphere they get really anal about stuff like that. 
<laughs> so well, I should probably clarify. Part of that's also just a difference across the pond because of where your degree is coming out of. Right, yeah. So I'm studying at uh, Henley, which is part of the University of Reading. Um, and it's uh, the, the one thing I have to say is it is it is sort of like the, the stereotypical British town. Like it's 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 actually Henley on Thames. So they've got all the regattas going on and, and the rowers and all that stuff. Um, and it, it's 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 a blast being there. It's a beautiful campus um, and, and very British um, is how I'll describe it. But uh, yeah, having a lot of fun and a lot of crises of conscience, um, you know, wondering what the hell I got myself into and uh, whatnot. Uh, it's very humbling talking to people who are just quantum level smarter than you can ever hope to be. Um, but it's a good thing it, it pushes you to, to strive harder. So I deal with that every day. I, in fact, I'm dealing with it right now. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> Then that you must be referring to John because I am I am a luddite. <laughs> I, I feel like I was referring to both of you, but all right, you can be a luddite if you want. <laughs> Don't destroy my printing press, please. <clears throat> Maybe this is a good point to end the season. Say goodbye to everyone. We'll see you again uh, next season with because money. Hopefully, it'll be the same post, but. It's kind of a tradition to shake it up. So maybe it'll be Preet and Sandy next year. Who knows? It'll be a complete mystery until just before the season begins. Uh, until then, I will once again uh, bring back Jackson's farewell from the first season and all the way through. Goodbye. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Because Money is a labor of love and involved no ads or other sponsorship. Be sure to click the like or subscribe button where you downloaded this from, as we'll help other listeners find the podcast and raise our profile, which in turn makes it easier to book guests. Please visit becausemoney.ca for show notes and related links.